0: Theory. y'all ready for this finally a podcast about the church for the church sit back and relax because you're now entering the reformed mental state hosted by the chicano knox coming from that gangster gospel perspective coming straight out of geneva listen to this homie listen
1: All right thank you so much for joining Bible Theory once again this is your host the Chicano Knox coming live and direct from the underground reform studios and you know real real quick I want to give a shout out to everybody listening to me in Kenya uh, South Africa uh, Nigeria I did some analytics and I just found out that you know I get a lot of listeners out there a lot of downloads a lot of supporters so shout out to all the ecclesiastical minded people down there in the continent of Africa, all God's chosen elect. I appreciate you. I see you. So thank you for your support. Uh, You know, hit me up on Twitter. Let me know where you're listening from. Uh, Use the hashtag Bible theory. And uh, don't be afraid to uh, become a Patreon on Patreon to support the ministry. Uh, Just trying to support something good here. So if you're, if you're being led and called to throw in five bucks a month, you know, just go ahead and do it. I appreciate it. Every little penny counts as uh, Dave Ramsey would say. Uh, so with me, I have a special guest uh, where, you know, we're, we're doing uh, the church series and it's kind of hard to talk about the doctrine of the church ecclesiology and kind of ignore the doctrine of the end times, ignore, uh, you know, eschatology. And, you know, last time uh, what was a couple episodes ago, we've done post-millennialism. Uh, so this time we're going to be doing amillennialism or like those people in England, they say a millennialism. <laughs> so uh, I have with me a privilege and honor to interview Kim Riddlebarger. You know, for those who don't know you, um, let, let, let people know who you are, what you do and how you came to, you know, your understanding primarily of amillennialism. All right.
0: I'd be be happy to, Jesse. I uh, um, currently am retired. I pastored a church in Anaheim, California for 25 years, Christform Church. I retired at the end of uh, 2020. I'm now a part-time professor, visiting professor at Westminster Seminary, California. I was raised in broad evangelicalism, Bible church fundamentalism, and it was a very difficult thing for me to realize that my view of the end times which was the standard dispensational view that Jesus would come back secretly, take the Gentile believers off the earth and the rapture, and then go back and deal with uh, Israel. The Antichrist would appear, Christ would come back and kill him in the Battle of Armageddon, and then he'd set up his thousand year millennial kingdom on the earth where Jesus would sit on David's throne again. I had a real hard time. I had a lot of questions about that. And it took me three, four, or five years to work through that. I eventually uh, embraced what's called all millennialism, which simply means that we're talking about the millennial reign that's described in Revelation chapter 20 as a present period of time, not a future period of time. So it's the time from Christ's first coming until his second coming. So whatever's going on in Revelation chapter 20, I don't think that's future after Christ comes back. I think that's current. So we're currently in the millennial reign of Christ now. And that raises a lot of questions because people have Probably have never heard that before. And it's so much simpler than the standard dispensational preacher rapture view that I think when people hear it, they kind of say, you know, that makes a whole lot of sense. That's what it did for me. And I had to wrestle with, you know, some objections and things I had to unlearn, sort of. And um, so about 20 years ago, I, well, longer than that now, good grief, it's probably 30 years.
1: Amen. You got to sprinkle your kids, you know what I mean? You got to sprinkle them, not dip them. You got to sprinkle them <laughs> uh amen you know anaheim you know i was born not born but i was pretty much raised in southern california south of anaheim which is in santa anita and santa okay. Ana. so yeah yeah you know, fifth and harbor if you know, yeah, anywhere. I know exactly <laughs> where that is
0: exactly yeah. yeah yeah yeah
1: so that's my stomping grounds you know what good mean? for you so um amen so uh you know Real quick, uh, for those who don't for those who are listening they're you know, they probably listen to that. They're like, whoa, or maybe they're just turned off by the whole issue because it, it stirs up division instead of unity. I,
0: I get why people are turned off by division. I think nobody wants to enter a, a contentious debate. It's like going to a family reunion and everybody knows why you don't talk to Weird Uncle Harry, because he'll tell these war stories if he asks him, he ignores him. Um, People just don't like to be, you know, brought into controversy. I I understand that. The issue, though, is the Bible speaks a great deal about Christ's return, and that raises questions how we're to understand the future. Uh, If the great promise is that Jesus is going to return in the last day to raise the dead and judge the world and make all things new, well, then we're living with that shadow on the horizon of, of a coming storm, in a sense. Uh, it's the blessed hope for Christians, of the glorious return of our Savior Jesus, but it's also the great day of wrath for non-Christians. So you can't escape it. It's coming. The Bible is very clear about it. It's very central about it. The central event in the New Testament left open-ended is the bodily return of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. That's, that's the, the blessed hope. That's what we are looking forward to. I think every Christian is hoping to be that generation living when the Lord returns, so we don't have to take physical, taste physical death. The, the questions come up, uh, I think, because there's a, a cadre, a, a group of Bible teachers that like to correlate current events with end times, and I think that's really a misguided uh, practice. Uh, scripture interprets Scripture. We don't go to the end times and find Bible verses that support it, and when you start to compare Scripture to Scripture, it's pretty clear that the main event, the thing yet remaining, is Christ's return. And Jesus is pretty clear. Nobody knows the day or the hour. It'll come upon us as a thief. Uh, There are signs that precede the end pretty closely, things to look for. um, But we won't know the day or the hour. We'll we'll have a sense that this is it. The season is here and the Lord will return suddenly. So people may not want to think about this because of the the loud voices that are so contentious, want to fight about this. But we fight about it because the Bible points us ahead to the second coming of Christ, and that raises all kinds of questions about, well, what comes next? You just can't get away from that.
1: Good answer. That's a great synopsis. It's like you know going to the family reunion. If I could steal that analogy, and then like you got your your you know your mom, you know your mom and your mom's sister arguing about who makes better peanut butter cookies.
0: <laughs> of course, of course, of course. And you don't it's, want to hear it because you've heard this for 10 yeah, times. Yeah, you're right? like, oh, boy. Right.
1: <laughs> what about those people that are just in the church that are saying, okay, we don't debate. We're not into division. I get it. Uh, I agree that Jesus is coming back. It's important. Um, it's my hope that he comes back, Maranatha, right? Right. But I, I, I don't plant my flag anywhere because let's say that old school joke, I'm a pan. Panellists or panmillennialists, yeah, everything yeah, is just yeah. going to pan out. <laughs> so, what do you say to those type of believers that are just that casually, just you know, rolling with the punches on all sides?
0: Well, my challenge to that kind of a believer is the Bible has a lot more to say than things are just going to pan out in the end. And I'm one of those guys that I don't want to be wrong. There's some doctrines that are more important than others. It doesn't matter a whole lot of things people debate about that are they're really pointless. But it is, as I said, the the New Testament is very clear that the second coming of Christ is the next thing preceded by signs, and you just can't opt out and say, well, I don't, I just, people divide on, I don't want to, if you did that, you wouldn't know the Trinity, you wouldn't know the deity of Christ, you wouldn't know what justification is, you you mentioned the doctrine of the church, well, then Baptist Methodist, Presbyterians, Anglicans, Episcopalians, Pentecostals, it doesn't matter, you know, I think that's a, 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 I get the sentiment why people feel that way, they're tired of fighting, but I also think that's that's a, an appropriate, maybe a lazy-minded kind of approach to things. I think Christians are called to be a little more vigorous in their understanding of scripture, um, and I don't want to be wrong. I, I want to kind of wrestle around uh, with my brothers and sisters with whom I disagree, because I want to have the truth. Now, I will, I will also say that we should be unlike the tribal nonsense that goes on in politics and and culture war and just because somebody disagrees with me on the end times doesn't mean they're a mortal enemy they may be my brother or sister in christ and we have to keep things respectful and and acknowledge that we it's okay to agree to disagree about some things you can't disagree about the gospel as paul makes clear in galatians and I, i think that the the central thing is we can't disagree about is the bodily return of christ at the end of the age the details um to be worked out, and I think when you go to the scriptures and start to to answer the specific questions, what's this going to look like? How's this going to happen? You're going to end up with, with the all millennial view. Very simple Christ is coming back, and when He does, He's going to raise the dead, believer and unbeliever. He's going to judge the world. We enter our eternal rewards, and He'll create a new heaven and new earth, as He promised, the everlasting home of righteousness. So, you know, Paul calls this the blessed hope, and I don't want to be indifferent to the blessed hope,
1: amen. And you know, like you said earlier, you know. People, you know, it's open ended. It's not um, a closed ended thing, but it does sound like there's something going on in terms of when people approach the Bible, or should I say more specifically, they approach prophecy, you know, and they approach prophecy with a certain hermeneutic or a certain style, or like you said, people look at the news. And they say, oh, well, what's going on in uh, Russia? I'm going to go ahead and look in my Bible and see what the Bible says about Russia. Like, And then, and then they get excited or whatever. So it's like, how do we interpret Bible prophecy then? Let, let, let's get to the heart here. And that's my first legitimate question to you is how do we interpret uh, Bible prophecy, like you say in your book?
0: Okay. The, the thing we cannot do is look at current events such as the Russian invasion of Ukraine and try and find where that's predicted in the Bible. You'll, you'll run into uh, a dead end because the Bible doesn't predict specific world events. It predicts general patterns of events. So we are told by Jesus in his last day teaching to his disciples, there will be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be earthquakes, floods, famines in various places. And then he goes on to describe the last days as being like birth pains. And anybody who's ever been in the delivery room with your wife knows that Um, You never know when it's when you've been at this a bit If this is going to be it or if this is going to be another birth pain that's going to end with a brief respite before they start over again. And that's the pattern Jesus gives us as we get toward the end. It's going to be very, very chaotic. And yes, there are going to be wars. Yes, they're going to be bad people. Yes, there are going to be terrible things happen like we see with the Russian abuse of of Ukrainian citizens and on. those are horrible things. But the Bible doesn't predict a war with Russia in the Ukraine. Uh, what the Bible does predict is there'll be wars and rumors of wars. So I, I caution against the the attempt that people make to find current events in, in the Bible. I, I think that's a fool's errand, and I have a stack of books on my shelf in my next door here of books that have made end times predictions. Um, the Russian invasion of Israel was a big deal back in the 60s, I have a lecture series from a very famous Bible prophecy teacher on Vietnam and Bible prophecy. How did that work out? I think it's just an improper way to handle Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. So the way we handle the end time is to go through our Bibles and look at what the Bible actually says about the coming of Christ. And from that, we can make some general conclusions because Jesus makes general conclusions, but not specific predictions. And remember, the warning Peter gives us in his second letter you know, scoffers are going to come, and they're going to say, where is this coming that you've promised? And the reason scoffers will come is because we give them a whole lot of ammunition. You know, we've got famous evangelists talking about red moons. Well, they've all come and gone. We have famous evangelists talking about uh, the 10-nation uh, European confederate. How, how many nations are in the EU now? Like 22. Those things just never come to pass. And one of our best theological writers, a, a fellow named Gerhardus Boss. Uh, leaves us, I think, with the wisest verdict of all. And that is a lot of these prophecies, their final fulfillment is going to be their final fulfillment. Uh, When we see it, we'll know it. But it's hard to predict in advance. The Lord made it very clear. No one knows the day or the hour. That's a universal negative. No one knows. So quit trying to figure out the specifics and hope for the return of Christ.
1: It's like that uh, old uh, SNL skit. where That guy comes in and he's like, stop it. (laughs) He's like, I fear death. He's like, well, yeah. It's very easy to overcome that. Just stop it.
0: (laughs) stop it. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs)
1: Uh, You know, there's a principle that we inherit from the the Reformers, from the period of the Reformation. And I know you brought this up in your book, and I thought this was very, very wise because we kind of forget about this principle, and that's sola scriptura. And how can we use the principle or the truth of sola scriptura as our hermeneutical method as we approach the Bible in general, and then how we approach Bible prophecy specifically.
0: Okay, really good, really good, and important questions. When we affirm sola scriptura, we're saying that the gospel can only be found in Scripture. You can go to Yosemite and marvel at its beauty and kind of say, "Yeah, there's a creator." Somebody had to make this gorgeous place, but we don't find the Trinity in Yosemite. We don't find the deity of Jesus in Yosemite. We don't find anything about Christ's cross in Yosemite. We don't find anything about his fulfilling all righteousness in Yosemite. So we have to go to scripture to find those things. We would not know anything about the second coming of Christ were it not taught us in scripture. So Scriptura means we go to the Bible to find the truth that God reveals to us that he wants us to know. And there's nothing outside of the Bible that is going to provide information uh, about how to be uh, justified before God, uh, about the Trinity, the deity of Christ. And we find a lot of great things in natural revelation. We learn a lot about God from nature, but we don't learn how to resolve our sin. We don't learn anything about Jesus or the Trinity, nor do we learn anything about the second coming. So we start with the principle of the Bible given as God's revelation. This is where he tells us certain things, i.e., that Jesus is coming back. And then the method, once we've established it, it's the only place where we we can find truth like that. We can't find that in nature. Once we get to that point, then it's, what do the scriptures say when we compare one Bible verse with another? And then we adopt a pattern uh, along the course of redemptive history. By redemptive history means the Bible tells a story that begins with creation, goes on to the recreation of all things. So as you look at that story, you don't start in chapter 12, and in chapter 12, uh, tell us what chapter 25 is going to mean you go through and look at the chapters as they unfold and the story gets better and clearer and clearer. So as one writer put it, there's nothing in the Old Testament that isn't, um, that contradicts anything in the New. It's just in the Old Testament, it's like walking into a very dark room. Uh, you bump into stuff because you can't see it. It's there. It's always been there. You, you run into it, you, you know, ding your knee on it or whatever. So the solution is you turn on the lights. Well, the New Testament is the light on the Old Testament. Once the New Testament has been given, we now have light on the Old Testament that we would never have understood before until that New Testament light shone on it. So the basic pattern of, of end times is we can see from the New Testament's reading of the Old Testament how Jesus, how Paul, how Peter, how John, how they read the Old Testament in light of Christ's death and resurrection. So we then see the Old Testament as type, shadow, promise, while the New Testament is reality, fulfillment, and the idea you would go from lesser light to greater light. So the New Testament essentially interprets the Old Testament. That's why I'm not premillennial. That's why I'm not postmillennial, because I think that basic pattern is the biblical writers in the New Testament give us a view of history. They tell us what to expect and they reinterpret all of those Old Testament promises in light of the coming of Christ and then the second coming of Christ and the ushering in of a new heavens and a new earth. And you wouldn't know that unless you know your Bible, unless you are able to read uh, Old Testament prophets in light of the, the coming of Jesus. You know, let me give you a classic example where if, you, if you're if you not careful about that, you'll do really goofy stuff like say, America has a covenant with it, with God, like Israel had a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. That's because you don't see the covenants fulfilled in Christ. So you run around making all kinds of, of religious and political statements about America's place in the world Using a totally inappropriate uh, method. And sadly, that happens way too often, and it happens way too often in in discussions of the end times. That's why people are turned off to it. Of course, because if you're not handling scripture correctly, you end up making all kinds of interpretive messes at the end. And people don't want to hear people fight about interpretive messes. They want the Bible to, to come with some rather clear authority. And, and tell us things very clearly. And what the Bible tells us very clearly is that Jesus is coming back and he's going to raise the dead. He's going to judge the world. He's going to make all things new. That, that's just crystal clear in the New Testament.
1: And real quick, um, you, you talk about approaching the Bible and reading the Bible, and then you gave us a couple of examples of being you know, very careful, um, interpreting or reading things into the Bible, uh, which is um, eisegesis and exegesis. Real quick, uh, what is the historical Protestant hermeneutic then? Um, I guess, in a clear nutshell, uh, what are the parameters? Because it sounds like it's just a hermeneutical issue, I guess. And, and uh, maybe a preference, uh, well, maybe, a, maybe a pride issue for uh, people don't want to change views or they don't want to admit that they're wrong, maybe.
0: Yeah, I, I, they're, all of that. Uh, the Protestant hermeneutic historically is to say against Rome. Rome said the church infallibly interprets the Bible. And Protestants said, no, 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 because you guys have made a mess of interpreting the Bible. Uh, Scripture interprets Scripture. So what that means is not every verse is equally clear, but when you put all those verses together, you get a pretty clear picture of the way things are going to happen. So Scripture interprets Scripture. That's one thing. Related to that is a second thing, that you work from clearer passages to more difficult passages. So you would take, for example, where Paul is making a very straightforward declaration about the return of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4, or 1 Corinthians 15, those passages are crystal clear, it's, it's, you have to work real hard to to make a mess of those. And that explains things like Peter's language of a new creation, Uh, ah, Christ's death and resurrection, his second coming, those are really important events, they're all tied together, Um, Christ's first advent, guarantees is second so that means when the old testament's talking about lions laying down with lambs and you know carnivores becoming herbivores and you know one of the, one of the, the legends that i grew up with in, in christian uh, sunday school was gee in the millennial age i'm gonna get to have a pet tiger you know that kind of that kind of stuff no the reason the reason you have pictures of long life and a blessing material blessing Kind of a change in the natural order is because when Christ comes back, he's going to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. So all of that goes back to the Reformation, the Protestant Hermeneutic is look, the church doesn't tell me what the scriptures say. The church confirms what the scriptures say. The scripture interprets scripture. You work from clearer texts to the harder texts. You work from the promise being given to Abraham and then the Mosaic covenant on top of the Abrahamic covenant how Jesus is the seed promised by Abraham, how uh, God incorporates Gentiles into Abraham's children. So we Gentiles are therefore called children of Abraham. That's because we interpret scripture with scripture and we work from clearer to more difficult passages and we follow the general outline of the course of the story. You read the Bible, it has a historical beginning, it has a progression of data, a progression of chapters like you'd read any other book. And by the time you get to the closing chapters, you've got a really p- good perspective on what those earlier chapters were trying to say. It's pretty basic stuff. You read the Bible like you would any other book. And I'm afraid Bible teachers have a real penchant to turn the Bible into kind of weird uh, speculation, weird mysticism. People read a verse and jump off and all kinds of bizarre things. The church reads the Bible collectively. Uh, individuals are kind of warned, of, if you're going to read the Bible and, and come up with weird stuff, you better check that out with other Christians. You know, the church interprets the Bible collectively, Uh, not the church tells us what the Bible says as Rome does. It's it's It sounds the same, but it's really different because in the Protestant view, the the authority rises from the biblical text, whereas in Rome, the church gives scripture its authority, supposedly. And so when we compare scripture to scripture and discussing it in the context of the people of God, that prevents uh harry from coming up with some bizarre interpretation and starting a new denomination on some weird thing that he alone found everyone else else's myth that's the guy you watch out for what you want to see is the church discussing and and debating and wrestling with these texts and coming to a clear and better position
1: right hashtag joseph smith and oh, exactly
0: exactly <laughs> exactly
1: yeah he's like you guys are all wrong and i have some egyptian gold tablets here <laughs> it's like what <laughs> man what are you smoking bro exactly <laughs>
0: exactly
1: you know back to the dispensationalist how does a dispensationalist interpret the bible prophecy then like what kind of hermeneutic what kind of approach uh you know what kind of stuff they're smoking you know when it comes to bible prophecy uh, give us a couple examples of how a dispensationalist interprets the bible so we could kind of see sure. the inside from insider view I mean, kind of like a magic trick you know like like an illusionist see you see them doing their tricks and you are like whoa and then he steps down the stage and he's like this is how i do it okay check it out and he shows you and you're like wow i can't believe i fell for that
0: (laughs) well you're a little harder than i would be but i i get i grew up on this and it was really painful to kind of unravel it so everybody has operating assumptions everybody has presuppositions about what the bible can and can't say so let's just put that on the table that, that dispensations have a, a working system that they have in place before they come to the dead. They deny that. They'll say it's inductive. They learn it from studying the Bible. I was a dispensationalist, and I think you'd come up with different stuff if you, if you followed that approach. Dispensationalists start with the assumption that scripture must be read literally. Now, that sounds like the right thing, and it is, except When the New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament, our dispensationalists say, because the Bible interprets itself literally, that what is said about the Abrahamic promise in Genesis 12 is going to tell us what Paul says about the Abrahamic promise in Galatians and Romans 3 and 4. So in other words, because you start with a literal interpretation, the New Testament cannot reinterpret the Old Testament, which is exactly what Jesus and the apostles do. They reinterpret the Old Testament. So we've got a collision just a method there. The second thing is our dispensational friends will say that God has two different redemptive economies or dispensations, one for national Israel, ethnic Jews, and the other for Gentiles. So the way they read the course of redemptive history is at some point, Jesus came and offered the kingdom to Israel. Israel rejected the kingdom. Therefore, Jesus withdrew the offer and took the kingdom to the Gentiles. So at the time of the end, God is going to rapture off or take off the Gentile church and go back to dealing with national Israel again. And then at the second coming, supposedly, Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom on earth, the true kingdom. And in that kingdom, Jesus physically rules from Jerusalem on David's throne. The sacrificial system is reinstituted only not to forgive sin, but as kind of a, a memorial of Christ's sacrifice. At the end of that thousand years where Jesus is ruling and reigning on the earth, the nations revolt against him, which means there's kind of a second fall that takes place at the end of the millennial age after Jesus has been ruling over the nations of the earth. Well, that's crazy. That just doesn't make any sense at all. And then Christ returns at the end and finally judges the world, and we go into the eternal state. So our dispensational friends have two assumptions. You read the Bible literally, which, as I say, sounds good on its face, but I want to read the Bible the way Jesus and the apostles did. Let me give you a concrete example. While they're on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, all these weird things happen. Jesus was announced his kingdom. He was crucified. Rumors were he was raised from the dead. He walks up to the two unnamed disciples on the road, and he gives them a lesson redemptive redemptive history. Wouldn't you love to have a recording of that lesson? Man, that would have been awesome. Hey, he's walking along with the two, and then he says, as is written about me in all the scriptures. So when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's telling them, in a sense, look, the whole thing's about me. So I'm not going to interpret the Bible in light of Israel. I'm going to interpret the Bible in light of Christ. So dispensations, sadly, have an Israel-centered hermeneutic. Um, I've gone toe to toe with John MacArthur on this, and I've got an essay on it in my blog if you want to look at it. Um, I also just reject that position because Christ and the disciples taught me that the Old Testament is a book about Jesus with a light. It's like the, a room with the lights off. You know, it's once He comes and flips the light of of his messianic mission, then I can see things in the Old Testament I couldn't see before. And he reinterprets the Old Testament in light of his, his redemptive mission. In Galatians 4, Paul says, I'm using an allegory. The very anything dispensational say can't be done? Paul does it. So I, I think the dispensationalists kind of pin themselves into a corner by using a hermeneutic that prevents them from letting the New Testament interpret the Old Testament properly. And once you paint yourself that corner, there's really no way out, other than that you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and say, no, 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 it's got to be literal, it's got to be Israel. Um, And and, okay, there's a thing called the law of unintended consequences. So if that's true, Jesus comes back, when he returns at the end of the tribulation, people get through his second coming, in natural bodies go and repopulate the earth, Do you really want to say that? Because when Christ comes back, he separates the wheat from the tarot, the sheep from the goat, the elect from the reprobate. Who gets through the second coming of Christ in a natural body? Nobody. And then at the end of Christ's thousand-year rule over the earth, Satan's allowed out of the abyss, the whole thing starts all over again, he deceives the nations, and Jesus finally destroys. Those things are just, you know, if you hold that view, this is what you get. You get a second fall, you get evil millennial age, and you get people going through the second coming in natural bodies which is just impossible and i know because when i was a dispensationalist becoming an millenarian i tried that argument over and over and over again and got a bloody nose every time i did it just won't. there's no out from it you're you're trapped you paint yourself in that corner that's what you get
1: you don't want to get trapped in the corner you know uh you know mike tyson will hit you you don't want you don't want to do that that's a dangerous place
0: i don't my ear bitten off
1: (laughs) yeah that that, that's the center of the stage (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah um so okay so that's a dispensationalist. uh an amillennialist how does how does i guess you kind of alluded to all these things um previously with all the things you said so to make it more clear how does uh, an amillennialist um uh, you know an amillennialist uh, approaches and interprets bible prophecy then to make it just crystal clear for you know the contrast
0: we take biblical prophecy in light of the in light of christ's coming how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? He ushers in his kingdom. So his kingdom is present, but not fully realized. It's going to be fully realized at his second coming. So all the prophecies about the coming kingdom are both already and not yet. There's a tension between what's already fulfilled and what's yet to be fulfilled. And we live in that, in this age, we live in that tension between what Jesus has already done, what he's yet to do. An example is our citizenship. Our citizenship. I'm an, uh, uh, born in America, I'm an American citizen by birth, yet Paul tells me I'm already a citizen of heaven, so I have a dual citizenship. I have an already, not yet. I'm justified now because I trust in Christ for my, my righteousness, my sin forgiven, and yet there'll come a day when I stand for the judge and, and hear that verdict audibly and enter into the kingdom he's prepared for me. With the new creation, when Jesus rose from the dead, he spoke of his resurrection as the first fruits of the great harvest. So the new creation is ushered in now. When we're regenerate, we're made alive. The new creation is dawning in our hearts. That'll be fulfilled at the day of Christ's resurrection when we're raised from the dead bodily. The, the second coming of Christ is the blessed hope. It's not a gazillion details like the top of a puzzle piece that um, you know I'm, I'm struggling to, to make sense of now. It's much clearer and, and simpler than that. When he returns, the heavens are going to roll up like a scroll. It'll be a day that non-Christians pray the rocks fall on because of the revelation of God's righteous wrath. It'll be a day where, you know, enter into my kingdom, receive the promised inheritance, uh, that, that which I prepared for you. It's a simple eschatology. It focuses on Christ's return, not on the details around Christ's return. It expects particular things, the gospel and preached, the ends of the earth. It expects a, a revelation from future Antichrist, probably. It, re- it reflects the end times conversion of huge numbers of Jews to the gospel. And it points us ahead to his, the resurrection of the body and the judgment of all men and women, and then the new heaven. Earth. It's, it's much simpler. It's a lot easier. The sad thing is the dispensational prophecy speculators have turned this into kind of a Christian form of Kabbalah or mysticism, where what you need is a guru who can sort out the end times, for you who can tell you how the Ukrainian situation is really a fulfillment of Russ in Ezekiel 38, 39. which has got nothing was there to do with that. Um, but that makes sense because, oh, the Bible's, the Bible's relevant because it, it speaks about what's happening now. It does, but in an entirely different way, not tied to somebody's speculation about what this means or that means. It never comes to pass as they have taught.
1: Yeah, it's uh, the problem of sensationalism. You know, They bring it yeah. up and it's like overhyped and they, it's very sad now that you mention it, you know, the Bible is relevant because, you know, Russia is in the Bible. It's like, what? Now, the Bible is relevant for way better reasons than Russia <laughs> it's, invading Ukraine. Uh, it's, per, know,
0: it's particularly relevant because I'm a sinner and I need a savior.
1: It, that, that's how it, tra- it transcends culture and all these other invisible lines. Uh, and it's powerful, you know, so it changes lives. Uh, uh, you yeah. know, pe- uh, pe- people are still caught up in this idea of the rapture. Uh, what what is the rapture what is the amillennialist point of view of the rapture And uh why is it you know so popular i guess in the modern day i guess if okay. you want to just attack that
0: a, a couple of things first of all let's put it in its historical context when does it arise it arises at a time in american and british history when everything was getting better you have this secular progress you've got the Idea that we're going to usher in a worldly utopia, and then you have uh, an obscure teaching that Jesus is going to return um, and take everybody off there before things get really bad. Well, it looks to me like things are getting you know, better. How could you say that? Then all of a sudden, we have World War One, which was the war to no wars. So we have the Great Depression, we have the invention of the atomic bomb. We have all kinds of things that are showing, eh, I don't think things are really getting better. But the good news is we're going to be removed before that happens, so you don't have to worry about being here for the nuclear Holocaust because Jesus is going to come take his people off, then there'll be the nuclear Holocaust. So there's a, there's a psychological attraction to being removed like uh, Enoch and and Elijah were without, without tasting death. So there's, there's that. And it's it's oftentimes tied to culture, if the things are going to vinegar, then this is a real good uh, way to, to uh, comfort people, even though it's not true in the Thessalonian letter. And in first Corinthians where Paul discusses the return of Christ, Uh, In the Thessalonian letter, he speaks of a loud command, a great shout, and a trumpet. Now, how on earth our dispensational friends who say they take the Bible literally can turn that into something nobody can hear is just beyond me. Um, My friend Ken Jones calls it the cosmic dog whistle. You know, only only believers hear the the trumpet, the voice, and and the shout. (laughs) No, the whole point of that picture is that Christ returns, and the whole world knows it, and nobody's going to miss it or sleep through it. And when Christ returns, the dead are raised. And the Thessalonian letter was written because some knucklehead in that church heard Paul talk about the second coming and then concluded that if Jesus hasn't come back yet and you die, eh, you're out of luck. You miss out on the resurrection. Uh, Too bad for you. And Paul's going to say, no, 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 no. The dead in Christ are raised when Christ returns. That's the issue. He speaks of believers being caught up to be with him. And the image here is of the Roman uh, governor or even the emperor, Caesar, when the city like Thessalonica would hear uh, that one of the grand poo-bahs from the Roman Empire is going to show up, they would leave the city in a parade, uh, rose petals or whatever, Uh, as the figure, the royal figure enters into the city, they come back with him. So your idea of, of rapture is tied to the culture that when the great king comes back, we're caught up with him and return with him in one event. We don't go into heaven for seven years during the so-called tribulation period, which the Bible says nothing about. And then um, the idea is that this is the summation, this is the consummation, this is the end of history, whereas our dispensational friends have all kinds of stuff that happens after the rapture. You have the appearance of the Antichrist, they say, the Antichrist makes a peace treaty with Israel, they say, the temple in Jerusalem is rebuilt, they say, and then the Battle of Armageddon takes place, and Christ comes back, and at the end of that seven-year period puts an end to all of it. That, that's just nowhere taught in Scripture. Um, and when you you press our dispensational friends on it, they'll say, "Well, you have to go to this passage," and you go to that passage, and it really doesn't say that. Well, that's because that passage is interpreted by this passage, and this. it starts this whole weird chain that just turns. It, it, they do to the New Testament what baseball has done with the infield fly rule, I mean, how many people understand the infield fly rule, right? It's complicated. It's That's a dispensation that's due to the New Testament. They, they, they really make a mess of things. They make things a whole lot more complicated than it needs to be, because their working assumption is flawed. God's going to go back to deal with Israel again. He's got to get rid of the Gentiles to do that. Uh, that's an operating assumption that just isn't supported by the whole course of redemptive history.
1: So. That's one of the issues people have against, I guess, the reformed world in general is that they say or they claim that the church replaces Israel and they say that that is wrong. So how do you deal with this claim?
0: Well, I deal with that claim by just somebody saying nobody's ever made it. It's one of those um, positions that I don't recognize in my own view, nor in anybody else in the reformed world's view that I know the belief is that God will save his elect, and the elect will be a group so vast they can't be counted. I mean, a huge number of people are going to be saved at the end of history. John makes that pretty clear in Revelation 7 that yeah, this is a, this is no small number of people. This is, a, this is a gigantic crowd. So through the course of redemptive history, you have the uh, first church is Adam and Eve in Eden, and then you have the patriarchal family with Abraham. So the, the family becomes the building block. When uh, Israel is exiled in the land of Goshen in Egypt. They become the nation then. That nation goes on uh, through to its exile from Canaan. It's exiled then to Babylon. It's becoming back. Uh, and in that larger nation of Israel, there are elect believers. There are those who are trusting in God's to Abraham for their salvation. And in that national state of Israel, there are others who say, no, I, I I'm really a good person. I, I I keep the law, I do what the rabbi says. Um, you know, I go to Jerusalem for the the make the sacrifice for the Passover, I do all the stuff I'm supposed to do, you know, and I when I die, I'll I'll receive the inheritance. So they are unbelievers in that nation as well. When Christ comes, we have the establishment of the church, which is really the fulfillment of all the things in the Old Testament pointed forward to the the promised seed and Abraham. So it isn't as though the church replaces Israel, it's that the, the God's plan of redemption becomes so much clearer in Christ. And instead of replacing Israel, the church adds a gazillion Gentiles to true Israel. So it's not replacement theology, it's expansion theology. So there are a couple of places in, in our um, Herman Bobik and others uh, will say things like the church replaces Israel and, the, and dispensations jump all over it. But what they mean by that is just in the order of redemptive history, not that God tears up Israel, it's done with them, he starts over the church. They don't mean that, which dispensationalists say they do. So I've always felt like this is this is a straw man argument. I think John MacArthur uh, set this up in his uh, Shepherd's Conference Lecture of 2007, which you know I, I went after him for because I think it's just, it's something we don't believe. It's a straw man thing. And he did this wonderful job of, of blowing the straw man down and stamping all over it. But it's something that nobody I know actually believes that. So um, this is a place where I think we need to, I get my dandruff a bit about this one, because this is this is an accusation, that just isn't true, and again, it's because I'm, I'm afraid our dispensation brethren misrepresent what the tradition teaches, largely because they haven't read the tradition. There's a lot of talk about what all millenarians believe, and a lot of it I don't even recognize, and I'm a rather loud all millenarian, hmm. so
1: yeah absolutely you wrote a book for about it you know I mean? exactly (laughs) exactly so a dispensationalist um, has a view on the kingdom of god but they don't believe that it's a present kingdom of god like in the real present day it's like in the future tense maybe yeah Um,
0: they've had they've had a big fight over this internally uh progressive dispensations believe pretty much what i do that christ ushered in His kingdom it's a spiritual kingdom it will be consummated visibly on his second return, his second advent. The old guard dispensationalists, the traditional dispensationalists, say that Jesus offered Israel the kingdom, Israel rejected it, he withdrew the kingdom, won't bring it back until the rapid, the, the second coming in a millennial age, which is called the kingdom age. And again, the New Testament passages are just really clear that the kingdom is a present reality, though not consummated. When when Paul says, "For so the kingdom of God is a kingdom of Joy, peace, and righteousness—you know that's present, that's not future. John the Baptist came, warning Israel. He's—he's he's the last of the Old Testament prophets, right? And he warns Israel, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew's language, um, the idea is that the one who is to come after me, whose shoelaces I'm unworthy to untie, he's bringing the kingdom, and the kingdom he brings is a spiritual kingdom. So, the concrete reality of that is when. One of our brethren, as I used to do, and our brother do now, when we preach the gospel, when we see people come to faith in Jesus and and trust him for their salvation, when God's people and their children are presented for baptism, when we come to the table of the Lord to receive Christ's body and blood through faith, that is the dawn of the kingdom. The kingdom is present, but you can't see it unless you have the eyeglasses of faith. Uh, It's an invisible kingdom, it's a spiritual kingdom, it's real. But unless you're a believer in Jesus, you're just going to miss it. It confounds you. And that kingdom will become a reality, a visible present reality on the day Christ returns. And so we have an already not yet um, present kingdom, future consummation kingdom, as opposed to the dispensation view that, well, Israel rejected. So bye, see you. We'll we'll come back in the lame and and then you'll have a kingdom. And by the way, that kingdom is going to be just like the Old Testament. So at the end of the day, the whole course of redemption the whole pattern that God has brought us his people through from Genesis to Malachi, that now becomes a reality again in the millennial age, and therefore denies the sufficiency of Christ's person and work, unintentionally, of course. That's not to say they're heretics or non-Christians, but it, makes, it is to say they make a gigantic mess of the course of redemptive history.
1: Not really helpful, huh?
0: No, it's not <laughs> helpful. It's confusing. It's utterly confusing.
1: You know... There, there is a pet peeve uh, with some Christians or dispensationalists. They're, they're looking out for the temple. They call it the third temple, and they say we're getting close. We're getting close. There, you know, and they say we have, uh, you know, the, you know, the Islamic mosque that's in the temple, the original temple that was there. Uh, they say, well, you know, there's going to be a compromise, and there's going to be a temple, and once that happens. You know, that's how, you know, Israel is going to come back and all, you know. So what's this big idea with this third temple? And, you know, because I always thought that Christ was the true temple. So what, what, what's the big idea behind this third temple and why? Like, I thought Christianity abolished the, the need for a temple, right? Because G- Jesus said to the woman, you know, there's coming, there's coming a time and, where you're not going to worship God, either on this place or this hill. You know what I mean? So like, wouldn't that just be a reversal?
0: It's not only a reversal, it's a mess. I grew up in, in churches where we heard that the red heifer had been found, that the, it's going to provide the bloodline for the sacrificial animals. Um, that there were was a quarry in Indiana where stones were being cut, that were this wonderful, glorious marble that would go back to Israel for the rebuilt temple. So I, I grew up in that lore that lore and their culture, and I, I'll never forget sitting through Dr. Klein's Old Testament lectures, where he's talking about the temple in the way you did, that the tabernacle in the wilderness, it was filled with the spirit. And then the temple in Jerusalem, again, was consecrated and, and very much like that, filled with the spirit. And then the temple became Ichabod when it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And even when it was rebuilt, it had to be re re-consecrated. And then the whole point of, of the gospels is Jesus walks into the temple courtyard in John chapter 2 and says, see that? it's going to be gone. And in three days, it'll be raised. And Oh, by the way, he was talking to the temple of his own body. So Jesus didn't see the temple as our dispensational friends did at all. And you're absolutely right that every time we, we meet together on the Lord's day as Christ's church, as Christ's people, when we assemble together to hear the word, receive the sacraments, when we do that, we are the temple indwelt by the Holy spirit, following that line of redemption from the tabernacle to the temple to the new temple, which is the assembly of God's people. And by the way, the true temple isn't on earth, it's in heaven and all the earthly temples and the tabernacle, the, the Jerusalem temple is rebuilding under under Solomon and then again under Herod, all that whole stuff is pointing forward to the reality. So it isn't as though the earthly temple gets better and better until they finally get it. It's the earthly temple gets better and better at showing us what the have true, the true temple is like already in heaven. And that's the reality, not a building on earth. That's why Jesus says it can't contain God. It Again, it's the earth is the heaven's Lord's His feet, right? Uh, it's not a building, and our, our friends just miss that. Now, the biggest theological problem with that is, why would you want to go back to animal sacrifice? Isn't there something in the Gospels that on Good Friday the temple veil was torn from top to bottom? Uh, doesn't that tell us that the temple from then on is Ichabod, and that any shedding of blood in that temple is not only wrong, it's blasphemous, because Christ, once for all death on the cross, ended that, so it, it, this is a more serious error than a lot of, and it's because of the way in which they view redemptive his, dispensation, view redemptive history, and I know they love Jesus, I know they trust his, his death, I did when I was a dispensationalist, I was clear that the death of Christ is what saved me, but their theology just undercuts that by saying, no, 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 they're going to be sacrifices again. They're going to commemorate. What about the Lord's Supper? Isn't that kind of what's supposed to do that until Christ comes back? Um, yeah, yeah. I, this, is a, this is one that I think really robs the people of God of, of genuine comfort and genuine anticipation of that glorious moment. We, we join the heavenly choir, the heavenly multitude, the church from it in heaven, in the heavenly temple.
1: Yeah, good points. I think one of my personal things that it, why dispensationalist uh, theology and interpretation or hermeneutics um, is like a chainsaw to the gospel. Because, you know, it, it reverses, you know, like you said, it, re- it goes back to the to the old ways of like the temple and, and, the, and the blood of bulls and goats. But kind of it does destroy the gospel. It distorts the gospel at the very minimum. If I want to be gentle. Because it does distort the gospel. Because the gospel would go something like this, where it'd be like, You need Jesus because you're broken and you're a sinner, which is like, okay, I think I agree with that. Yep. And then they'll say, Jesus, and then they move quickly, like through the gospel presentation. And they say, Jesus is coming back. Don't you see what's happening in the world today? Mm-hmm. And it's it's getting ready. And it's like, um, Well, yeah, you know, things, you know, you know, you could kind of see, you know, maybe things are kind of getting ready, but we don't know the time and hour. Like, come on. And it's like, well, therefore, you need Jesus. And it's like, that's the kind of gospel. That's the kind of gospel presentation you hear. You know, at least that's how I I heard the gospel for the first time. It was an eschatology before theology. It was the eschatology before the real gospel, uh, the full gospel. And it's like, repent and turn to Jesus because of the rapture (laughs) it's like what yeah so like that's my pet peeve It, it really distorts the gospel the dispensationalist hermeneutic distorts the gospel because it really does influence the preaching of the gospel it's like your whole pet peeve is the rapture you know what I mean your 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 whole pet peeve is Russia and Ukraine and the third temple and you know you know the you know the left behind movies are influential so you're like that's the gospel. It's like Jesus is coming back. It's the rapture. So come to Christ. And it was like, um, no, you know, I'm pretty sure there's way more to it (laughs) than (laughs) there's something missing in that gospel presentation. But unfortunately you step into any mega church, that's usually the presentation of the gospel It's the rapture. Therefore you need Jesus.
0: Yeah. Well, you're from Santa Ana. So you were just up the road from one of the factories of this at Calvary chapel. Um, I can't, tell you how many times i sat through greg laurie or chuck smith talking about how uh, come to faith in jesus now because the rapture is going to come you don't want to be left behind and uh i before the the left behind series i grew up on the thief in the night stuff where you know they had these cheap old 40 conline bands you know with 666 paint on the side driving to the streets hunting down you know people who would become christians after the rapture and who'd missed out so this is just part of evidence of the Lord, but you really hit the problem. Given the dispensational hermeneutic that the law was for a different dispensation, you don't have dispensational preachers say the reason you need Jesus is because you've broken God's law and you're a sinner. Because for them, the law was done away with with the coming of Jesus. So now what you've broken are the man-made laws. You've had a cigarette. You've had a beer. You've watched an R-rated movie. Therefore, you need Jesus. Uh, no, 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 no. I need Jesus because in my heart, I'm a wicked idolater who sins against God and thought, word, and deed. But if you don't have the law to make that point, then all you've got are these exhortations to get ready, to get right before the rapture. And you, you nailed it. You described exactly the kind of culture I was raised in and the kind of culture that still persists now. Thankfully, some of that's going away, but it's the hermeneutic. If you don't have the the, uh, law in the new covenant era, then you really don't have a gospel that's clear. Your gospel is reduced to believe in Jesus, he died for your sins. All of that's true, and that's great and glorious, but you miss out on the part that says, not only did he die for your sins, but he fulfilled all righteousness by keeping the Ten Commandments perfectly, so that when I trust in Jesus, my sins are forgiven, and I'm reckoned as though I had kept the 10 commandments every minute of my life because Jesus did. I'm not only forgiven, I'm reckoned righteous. And if you lose that imputed righteousness, then all you can do is try and scare people into the kingdom by saying, look, you're going to miss out. You're not going to be ready when the Lord comes back and you're going to be left behind as opposed to no, because you're a sinner and God has commanded you to do things and you've broken every one of those commandments. The good news is God says do and Jesus says done. It's fulfilled mm. in me. It's done. And I'm, I'm afraid the dispensational understanding of the law and the gospel really leaves them with no alternative, but for some kind of cajoling of us and kind, of, kind of scare tactic to get people to come to Jesus before the, the second coming. And I think it's a very truncated gospel. It's a it's weak. It's a half gospel.
1: Amen. There ain't no half step in with Jesus. No,
0: no, <laughs> no, nor with the law.
1: Nor with the law. There's no half step in a Mount no. Sinai, bro. Get no. killed it does killed me (laughs) it will kill you you know what i mean yep so the law is not your friend the law is not your friend you have a bad relationship with the law you know and if you are not in jesus you don't have a right relationship with jesus because uh you hate jesus and you hate His law you want to do your own thing
0: how many times have you heard the gospel as god looks on your heart
1: Oh, I heard it. I heard that a lot of times.
0: I do not want God looking on my heart apart from Christ because my heart is black. I don't want God looking on my heart. I want him looking on my Savior.
1: Well, he'll look at your heart and kill it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he'll give you a exactly. new one. He's like, you yeah, need heart surgery, yeah. bro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, Ezekiel exactly. says that he turns in um God will enter. Uh, you know, now we're talking about regeneration, which is the Holy Spirit's work on a sinner transforming the the heart into a heart right. of stone into a heart of flesh right and amen amen and, and what you talked about before was justification and double imputation for those that don't know so anyways yeah. you know to just to end it real quick how can people find you what do people uh, other than your book on millennialism what are some of the sources or resources you sh- uh, you would recommend people to continue reading uh for those listening
0: good a very helpful. I, I have a list of resources on my blog. It's the Riddle blog, kimriddlebarter.com, all lowercase, kimriddlebarter.com, Riddle blog. Look on the tab at the top. This is on millennialism. I've got all kinds of resources. Some of my own. I did a lengthy series. Uh, the book is there, but I've got a lot of links to other stuff. Uh, some of it's my own stuff, but I've got a link. There are lots of great resources out there. I tried to incorporate the, the ones that are, I think, the most helpful. So, so check that out. That's That's one thing. Um, I also do a podcast uh, called The Blessed Hope, where I go through I'm going through Galatians now. And my next uh, season two is going to be a very detailed exegetical trip through Second First and Second Thessalonians, and we're going to spend a lot of time from the text from Paul talking about the rapture and the Antichrist and second coming. So uh, people may want to look forward to that as well.
1: Awesome! I'll check that out because I'm in my personal devotion. I'm doing First Thessalonians right now. Oh, good. So.
0: Well, it's not it's not up yet.
1: It'll be my it's second it. season. All right, well, so, maybe, stone maybe, galatians. maybe i'll slow down a little bit <laughs> i'm still in galatians okay well i appreciate appreciate your time thank you so much sure I'm glad um, to do it
0: Thank you for listening to the bible theory don't forget to share this with your homies and subscribe to bible theory on iHeartRadio, radio spotify itunes amazon music and follow on twitter at the chicano knox